the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. As we approach our second COVID winter, the stats suggest we still need to be really vigilant about stopping the spread of this deadly disease during the pandemic. And that means taking some precautions that many of us may have believed would be unnecessary by now. Today, we're going to talk with two authors of a piece in The Atlantic that lays out what we will likely need to do to keep ourselves, our children, and each other safe. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So the United States has reached yet another grim milestone in the COVID-19 pandemic. There are now 700,000 Americans who have lost their lives to COVID-19. That's about equal to the populations of Detroit and Saginaw combined. The novel coronavirus is now America's deadliest pandemic ever, surpassing the number of deaths from the 1918 flu. Meanwhile, the world has now surpassed 5 million COVID deaths. And this is all as we're about to head into our second COVID winter, and the overall death toll just continues to rise. The Delta variant is still burning through our population, fueled by the tens of millions of Americans who still refuse to get vaccinated. The only good news seems to be that Delta seems to have peaked, perhaps on a national scale, but we're still not sure what this fall or this winter are going to hold. That's where we want to begin the conversation today. My guests have teamed up recently for a piece in The Atlantic, which compiles six things we need to know heading into this winter, regardless of which trajectory the virus takes. They join me now to talk about those points and what the next few months might look like here in the United States. Catherine Wu is a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers science. Catherine, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me again. And also with us is Sarah Zhang. She is also a staff writer at The Atlantic. Sarah, welcome back to Detroit. Thank you. Today. Yeah. Yeah, so, thank you. Good to be here, both of you. I want to I start here. Uh, the first of the six things you say in this piece is that the role of vaccines has changed again. I want to start with, with what you mean by that. Catherine? Uh, sure. Um, I will probably let Sarah take a significant portion of this, but happy to, to start off here. I mean, I think a lot of this framing has been a little bit confusing for the public recently. I do want to stress up top here that the vaccines are still doing an extraordinary job of preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. But emphasizing that point might sound a little strange because we heard so much great news about how good the vaccines were at blocking, you know, all infections, regardless of severity, maybe even to some extent, like most forms of transmission, enough that we were told we could take off our masks uh, in, in the spring. And that has been really tough to take. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, Sarah has written so beautifully about this. I think it'd be great to let her finish this point off. Sure. Sarah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks, Catherine. So, um, you know, if we, if we could take a little, like, time travel back to about, um, you know, last summer. Um, I was talking to a lot of vaccine researchers, and they were telling me, well, you know, we're optimistic about a vaccine, but we hope to get a vaccine that will prevent severe illness and hospitalization and death. In fact, and that is exactly what happened, right? 
what we have right now, right? Um, but as Catherine was saying, you know, for a brief period after we got the first results from the uh, vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer, um, they looked to be 94, 95% effective. And those numbers were so good. They were so much better that scientists had ex- expected or even dared to hope that we uh, kind of raised our expectations. We thought, hey, maybe this is not just about preventing hospitalizations. Maybe we can also um, eliminate the virus locally. And what that would mean is that, you know, there might still be COVID in the world, but it's not really going to circulate in the U.S. if we can vaccinate enough people. So that might be something like measles or polio where those um, those diseases still exist, but we don't you know, worry about them on a day-to-day basis in the U.S. Um, and that one happened. You know, another twist in the story is that Delta came along, right? And Delta is just so much more transmissible and it has some little ability to um, evade the virus just a little slightly to get a little bit less effective. And so we're kind of back to where we started, which is based on expectation that these uh, vaccines are still really, really good, as Catherine is saying, with preventing hospitalization at death. Um, they can still keep us from our hospitals from being crushed and IC units from being overwhelmed. Um, but they're probably not going to prevent everyone from transmitting. They'll still like reduce transmission if you get vaccinated from what we're seeing. But they're not they're not like a you know silver bullet that's just going to totally get rid of the virus. So we're kind of back to this world of these vaccines are very good. They're going to keep you out from the hospital. Um, we're probably going to keep you from dying, but they're not going to completely eliminate the virus. So one of the dangers, I think, of that truth, and there's nothing I suppose we can do about this, is that those who refuse to get vaccinated, I now hear them saying things like, well, it's not foolproof. It's not 100% sure if I do get the vaccination that I won't get sick. Uh, there, there, There are all of these kinds of, I guess, excuses that, that come out of the fact that the vaccine is not a panacea. Uh, Can you talk a little about how no vaccine is and that what we're seeing is quite normal and about the fact that one of the reasons that the disease is able to spread as easily as it is now and to mutate the way it is is because of people who won't get uh, vaccinations. Uh, Sarah, I'll stay with you here. Yeah, that's right. No vaccine is a panacea. Uh, essentially, no vaccine is 100% effective, right? Um, like take, for example, uh, the flu vaccine, which I think is at this point probably a pretty good analogy. Um, uh, the flu vaccine year to year is something like 10 to 60% effective. So actually, our go-to vaccines are still doing pretty well against that standard. Um, but also, like vaccines aren't necessarily an on-off switch, right? They're not going to say, hey, it's, you're going to get the disease or you're not going to disease. Um, I like to think of it as vaccines are kind of a dimmer switch. So if you're unvaccinated, assume you're someone who is unvaccinated and maybe you're a little elderly, you have some comorbidities. Um, if you're unvaccinated, you may get a very, very severe case. If you're vaccinated, what that uh, virus that vaccine is doing is that it's going to prepare your body to face the virus. So you're not going to be um, kind of completely naive to this virus. You'll be a little bit more defended. So Maybe you'll get all the way to um, having no symptoms at all. Maybe you'll still have a a mild illness. But what happens is that um, the the vaccine is just going to make the intensity of the um, disease you ultimately get uh, less severe. So even if it doesn't completely prevent you every single little sniffle or cough, um, it's still better than not being vaccinated at all. Um, and I, I'd love for Catherine to weigh in a little bit here because I think she's written a little bit about the the myth that um, or possible myth that vaccines can get us to something called um, sterilizing immunity at all, which is kind of the idea that maybe you get vaccinated once and you never get a disease. But that mm-hmm. may actually be a little oversimplified. Yeah, go ahead, Catherine. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a tough thing for us to wrap our minds around, especially because, you know, exactly as Sarah was saying, so much of the messaging was around vaccines being key to ending this pandemic. I think that is still true, but it's easy to conflate a message like that with vaccines are the only key we need to end this pandemic. And, you know, I I think there's two uh, things to really internalize here. One is kind of on a more micro level and one is on a more macro level. On the more micro level, you know, it is really, really difficult for any immune response, whether it's induced by a vaccine or a previous infection or what have you, to completely stave off infection for the rest of your life. I mean, imagine what that is asking your immune system to do. Mm -hmm. It's effectively asking your immune system to say, 
oh my gosh, anytime I see any blip of this bacterium or virus or parasite, I'm going to immediately purge it from the body. It's not going to have any chance whatsoever. You know, it takes time for your body to respond and to ask your body to, um, you know, basically erect this impenetrable shield around you. That's an enormous investment of resources. Your body has a lot of things to pay attention to at once. And it actually is okay for an infection to occur for, you know, a brief period of time if your body eventually eliminates it. And so, you know, I don't want people to be terrified of the idea of any positive test whatsoever. Um, you know, certainly we don't want people to seek out infections or think infections are desirable, but maybe start to make peace with this idea that some infection is okay if you are protected to the extent that your body recognizes the threat and can eliminate it eventually and not leave you very harmed in the process. I think that kind of brings us to this macro level idea of, you know, we're we're really not positioned to eliminate this virus from the planet anytime soon. Um, you know, the the majority thinking at this point is that the virus is going to be with us. It's going to become endemic, a, a phrase that sort of means in population. It's going to be a lot like the flu or the common cold coronaviruses that circulate among us. And that means many of us will encounter it through our lifetimes. Again, that's not an endorsement of infection, but just kind of the reality that if many of us are going to encounter it, it's far better to do so prepared by a vaccine than it is to meet it completely unguarded. And and this this idea that um, the vaccine is still having a hard time. One of the other things that I'm hearing from people is that the people who are unvaccinated but who had COVID uh, yeah. are not getting enough credit for for their immunity uh, and that we ought to be assigning more uh, immunity and safety to the idea that um, that if you were sick with COVID, that that you are not as prone to the disease as as others. But but I but I wonder if you the two of you can talk to uh, the, the the danger of spreading the disease, even if you've had COVID. That's, I think, the thing that that gets missed in that analysis. Am I right? Oh, definitely. I think this is a, a huge issue right now. And I hear this, you know, quote unquote, uh, natural immunity argument quite a bit. And, you know, maybe one thing to, to say at the top here is I actually don't love the phrase natural immunity because all of this is natural. You know, even what the vaccine induces is just asking our body to do what it does typically. But yeah, I mean, there is evidence that certainly if you have been previously infected by this virus, sure, that is how the immune system works. It can often learn from the virus, remember it in you know somewhat the same way it does with a vaccine. But think of the enormous risk that you are taking in the process. Um, and I think there's two enormous gambles here. One is, you know, you are being infected with the actual virus that is never, ever, ever desirable. That's putting your body in enormous danger. Infections, actual viruses, unlike vaccines, you know, they cause disease. They can spread to other people. They make you contagious. Um, and the second gamble is that there's no guarantee that there's going to be adequate protection left behind. There seem to be this enormous range in the quality of protection that's left behind by an infection. And there may be this rough um, sort of relationship or correlation between how severe your disease was and how good the immune memory is. Uh, you can sort of think about it like, you know, your body almost undergoing a, a trauma. If it was an extraordinarily mild infection, you barely had any symptoms, your body might think, oh, that was not such a big deal. I don't need to devote that much you know, I guess brain space or immune memory space to remembering this and fighting it off again. Whereas if it was much more severe, um, maybe it's more memorable, but it was also much more severe. That's not something I would ever wish on anyone. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that adding a vaccination on top of that really, really boosts uh, the immune response that's generated and it really reduces your chance of getting reinfected. Uh, I'm talking with Catherine Wu and Sarah Zhang of The Atlantic, and we are talking about the things that uh, all of us need to be anticipating that we should be doing this winter, the second COVID winter that we are experiencing. Uh, we would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. 
call and tell us about your plans for the next couple of months in terms of keeping yourself safe during this second COVID winter. Do you expect this winter to feel safer, safer or easier than last winter? Or are you taking similar steps and precautions to make sure that you and your loved ones don't get sick? What questions do you have about what's safe and what won't be? Uh, this winter. And as always, uh, we also want to hear uh, about your feelings about vaccination call and tell us if you have taken uh, one of the vaccines for COVID-19. Uh, tell me if you are getting a booster, something that I plan to do uh, in the next week or so uh, to make sure that the, the vaccine that I took in the spring is still uh, working through the winter. Um, give us a call. Let us know if you've gotten the booster, what uh, kind of response you had to it, and whether that makes you feel safer as we go into another another winter with this pandemic. Uh, also, give us a call if you don't plan to take the vaccine. If you haven't so far and you have no desire to do it, as always, uh, we want to get every point of view into the conversation here. Call and tell us why. Call and tell us what your hesitation is about. And especially call and tell me what it would take to convince you that the vaccine is something you ought to be taking and that it is the way forward. Uh, as we continue to deal with COVID-19. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page. You can put comments there. Uh, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Um, uh, before we get to listeners, uh, I want to talk about a couple of the other points that uh, that Catherine and Sarah make uh, in their in their piece. Uh, one of the things you write about is that the people at greatest risk from the virus will keep changing, and that's uh, I think interesting given the the new conversation about vaccines for children. They have thought been thought to be. Uh, among the most vulnerable uh, because of the vaccine, because they couldn't get it, but also uh, there was some protection uh, apparently for them because uh, not many of them seemed to be able to contract the disease. But, but what do you mean when you say that the people at greatest risk will keep changing? Uh, I'll start with you again, Catherine. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think what is key to remember here is that you know, when we think about immunity, again, you know, based on what discussions we were having earlier, it is very easy to get into this binary thinking. But as Sarah pointed out, you know, immunity, vaccination, it's really more of a, a dimmer switch than an on and off switch. And, you know, this is something that is also dynamic over time. Um, you know, we can all acquire immunity, immunity can fade a little bit, and having immunity uh, in some parts of the population really does sort of change the calculus for who is more vulnerable. So think about how the vaccines were rolled out in this country. We, I think, very practically rolled the vaccines out to those most vulnerable to the virus first, you know, uh, people who were older, healthcare workers, people in nursing homes. That made a ton of sense, but that gave those people protection that the rest of us did not have. And the way that the vaccines rolled out just sort of left, you know, younger and younger sectors of the population uh, vulnerable. You know, they were in line to get the, those shots next, but the rollout took months. I mean, we are still in the middle of the rollout. Kids still, well, so kids under 12 still don't have access to the vaccines, though hopefully that is coming later this month. We have seen uh, numbers of COVID cases in children really soar uh, this spring and summer. And I think that is in part because that was a huge contingent of the population that remained unvaccinated. Hopefully that is going to start to shift again as those kids get the protection that many of us have already had. But this is not going to be a static thing. You know, you were just talking about boosters. It's a very timely conversation because the whole conversation on boosters, this is about the possibility of certain immune protections, you know, fading somewhat over time. It's not a total disappearance, but sometimes the immune system can get a little forgetful. It's why we have boosters for other vaccines. You know, every 10 years, each of us is asked to get a tetanus booster, for example. And that's to sort of address the idea that sometimes your immune system really needs a reminder about a virus or a bacterium that's dealt with before, but hasn't seen in quite some time. And so, you know, we will have this 
these sort of waves of protection sort of um, cresting and falling over time. Um, also keep in mind that everyone who is born anew, <laughs> they are being born without immunity to this virus. And maybe, you know, in the future, uh, the people most consistently vulnerable to this virus among them will be very young kids who don't have the immunity that others of us have gathered throughout the lifetime through vaccines or possibly encountering the virus itself. Hmm. Sarah? Yeah, no, I think Catherine covered it really well. That, um, you know, the way we think when we're talking about greatest risk here, we're not necessarily talking about absolute risk. You know, I think even though there are still many people unvaccinated in the U.S., if we're talking about the population whole, we are in a much better place now than we were a year ago because so many people have been vaccinated, and especially, um, you know, higher numbers among the elderly and the most vulnerable. So I think we're really talking about relative risk here, right? Um, the kids are the ones who are still unvaccinated. Um, uh, the the, the you know, they're not more at risk than they were a year ago, necessarily. Um, Delta is a little bit more transmissible and maybe it's a little bit more severe, but it's not, you know, it's not, a, not, not such a huge difference. The big difference is that it's uh, the relative risk has changed. Um, the people who are most likely going to catch this virus is always going to be the people who are unvaccinated. Um, I think when it comes to risk of severe illness and hospitalization flow, I think we're still... Um, should be focused on trying to vaccinate as many of the elderly as possible. You know, one sort of interesting thing is that if you compare, for example, how the UK and the US have done in, in terms of um, vaccinating their elderly population and just the number of cases that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot more hospitalization and deaths for what looks like a similar um, proportion of cases. And that's and that's because we haven't done as good of a job as vaccinating, for example, the 60 or the 65 plus population. Um, and some of these differences might sound small, right? Like if you know, one area vaccinates, let's say, 99% of their elderly versus another area vaccinates 90%. That doesn't sound like a huge difference, but we're actually talking about 10 times as many um, people who are at risk for needing to go to the hospital and hours right. for needing the ICU. So, um, you know, we... Vaccinating as many people is, is great, but also we should really think about trying to vaccinate the most vulnerable and trying to keep our hospitals from being overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Catherine Wu and Sarah Zhang of The Atlantic. We will also get to your calls and comments. Stacy in Metro Detroit, Kathy in Livonia, Karen in Macomb, you're up next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Uh, you can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there and we'll include you in the conversation. Call and tell us, what are you doing to prepare for our second COVID winter as the death toll continues to rise and uncertainty still surrounds so many aspects of this pandemic? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Before we get back to our conversation, I just want to take a minute to thank everybody who contributed to our fall fundraiser uh, this year. As you know, public radio in Detroit is powered by you, the listeners. You give the vast majority of the funds that keep shows like Detroit Today and All Things Considered uh, and Morning Edition and Culture Shift on the air as well as of all of the great music shows that we have here at WDET. And twice a year we come to you and ask you to make sure that we can keep giving you that wonderful programming uh, and ask you for monetary gifts. Uh, I'm always overwhelmed by the number of people who participate and always by the amount of money that we're able to raise. So from me specifically, thanks to everyone who contributed. All right, today we're talking about the second COVID winter, which is just upon us and what we need to be doing, what we need to be thinking about to make sure 
that we and our children and all of us, in fact, are safe. The things that we need to be precautious uh, about, the things that we really need to, to continue doing that uh, we have been doing now for more than a year and a half to stop the spread of COVID-19. Uh, we want to hear from you specifically about what you're doing and what you're thinking as we continue to muddle our way through this pandemic. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, I've got two wonderful guests with us this hour as well. Catherine Wu is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers science. And also with us is Sarah Zhang. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic as well. Uh, they have written a piece together about six things we all need to be keeping in mind and doing uh, as we get into this second COVID winter. Uh, let's go to the phones here and uh, start with Kathy in Livonia. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? Good. How are you, Kathy? Good. Um, so I'm responding to, you know, what is the strategy for the second winter? Um, and my thinking is that I'm looking, uh, I'm going to stand down more from um, what the height of it was last winter, but be more cognizant of not just COVID, but of the common cold, of the flu, mm -hmm. and how I engage my environment. Maybe more mindful walking through that and give my body more of the things that it needs to really have a strong immune system without having to actually confront, you know, the disease. Mm. Uh, Kathy, give me an idea of what you're thinking about things like vaccinations and boosters and things like uh -huh. that. Is that, yeah. uh, is that running through your mind as well? Yeah, well, I did the initial vaccination, the COVID vaccination in January, February of this year. I just got my flu shot. Um, and if the booster is available to me, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I believe in the science. I believe in, um, you know, communities looking out for each other by taking care of themselves. So, yeah, yeah I'll definitely be doing that. Yeah. Uh, Kathy, I uh, really appreciate the call uh, and uh, and the insight into how you're you're managing all of this. I love that you're thinking about it and acting on science, which uh, we really have been encouraging uh, everyone to do here on Detroit Today. Uh, let's go to Stacy in Metro Detroit. Stacy, what's on your mind? Hi, I got my booster shot and I'm so thrilled. So I just wanted to encourage everyone to get their vaccinations and their boosters. The mm. booster I had on Thursday, I felt literally nothing. It didn't hurt. I had no side effects and I'm just thrilled to be extra careful. This isn't some, you know, stock tip that ivermectin works. People should Stay away from that kind of crazy stuff. Hmm. Uh, and, you yeah. know, just get their vaccinations. Yeah. Uh, Stacy, appreciate the call and, and the info. Um, uh, Catherine and Sarah, I, I do want to talk a little about the booster. And, um, uh, you know, Stacy says that she had no no side effects from, from the booster. I know that for a lot of people, there were side effects with either the first shot or the second shot. And some people, I think, had reactions to both. But talk about the reactions that are possible, I guess, with, uh, with the booster. Is that the same as what we were facing in, in the early going when we were taking the first uh, two shots? I'll start with you this time, Sarah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think um, this is sort of the point because we're kind of just getting boosters. We're going to get the better data to tell us exactly what the statistics are. But we can we can think a little bit about what how these things generally work with other vaccines. So one big difference between getting a second shot where, you know, these some of these MRA vaccines do have quite a bit of a kick. Um, and getting a third shot is a lot more time has passed, right? Like when you got a, your second Pfizer Moderna shot, that was three or four weeks after the first one. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's now we're talking about over six months out. And from the way we know that the immune system works, um, sort of the longer you wait in between uh, your different shots in the series, the less likely you are going to get this kind of like flu-like symptoms. Again, you're not actually getting the flu, you're not actually getting sick, this is just your immune system responding to the fact that there are um, not even viruses, but just like viral proteins that you, uh, your, your body is not going to recognize and defend you against. 
Um, so there's actually some reason to think that the kind of longer you space out these shots, um, and I think in countries such as Canada and the UK, which did space out the first and second shot a little bit longer, um, there were maybe slightly less side effects of the second shot. So now with the booster, you know, even more time has passed. Your immune system has kind of had a little time to calm down since the first time it, it, had, it encountered um, the, the coronavirus vaccine. So there's reason to think that you will have milder side effects. Hmm. All right. that's, that's good news, I think, for a lot of people who are apprehensive about uh, the side effects from, from these vaccinations. Let's go to Karen in Macomb. Karen, welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. Hi. So um, I have quite a few comments. Um, first of all, I am fully vaccinated. Um, I will be getting my booster shot in roughly two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, side effects were really super minor. So, you know, um, they... You know, they they let you know ahead of time uh, what the possible side effects could be, and again, they were minor, no issue. Um, in regards to people not getting vaccinated and <laughs> going around thinking, you know, it's a personal choice and beating their chest over that, I'd like to remind them all: it's not a constitutional right that's protected. We're dealing with public health here. And no, you do not have a constitutional right to go around infecting others with a deadly disease. It is just void of common sense. And for those who are not protecting their children, they don't want to get them vaccinated. They don't even bother to have them wear masks inside of stores it really begs the question, how much do you hate your kids? Hmm. Because, you know, so far, well, at this present moment, the vaccine is not available for children under the age of 12. I know they're getting it ready, but, you know, could a child be vaccinated today under the age of 12? Sadly, the answer is no. Right. So the next best thing you can do is when you take your children with you to the store or any other public place where you're going to be indoors, put a mask on your child. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. so many parents that they have the kids in the stores and that they're under the age of 12 and they don't have masks on. And I'm not talking about infants. I'm not talking about, you know, a toddler that's two or three years old. I'm talking about, you know, you've got kids over the age of six, you know, so between six and 11. And I just shake my head and I think, do you really not care about your child? This is a deadly pandemic going on. And, sure. you know, the news reports are constantly, you know. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's still happening. Going. Yeah, Karen, it's still happening. And, um, and we, need, we need people to be vigilant still. Uh, I, I really want to stay on this subject of children for just a second. Uh, because it does seem that that's the next frontier in significant change with uh, vaccines. We're pretty close to, it sounds like, uh, to the FDA approving uh, some version of the vaccine for children under the age uh, uh, of 12. Um, but, but Catherine Wu, I want to have you talk about how that will change the picture uh, overall, but also uh, what what parents ought to be thinking about or maybe concerned about, or if they have concerns about uh, this, this childhood vaccine, how to, how to assuage them or, or how to answer them? Yeah, these are really good and important questions to be asking right now. And, you know, I think you're right. Uh, this decision is coming very soon. The first one is going to come for kids in that 5 to 11-year-old group, um, and then all the way down to six months, um, a little bit after that. That's just kind of how the, the data laid out. But, you know, there have been a lot of questions swirling around about this. Why did it take so long? Are there additional concerns for kids? And I think, you know, it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, kids are not just tiny adults. They do 
have different physiologies. They do have different needs. And part of the reason that this did take so long was because, you know, the vaccine makers really wanted to do their due diligence. The original trials were in adults, and this is just the crucial next step to make sure that the vaccines are both safe and working really well in younger age groups. All evidence is pointing to absolutely yes, the vaccines may even be more effective in these younger age groups, and that's fantastic. Another thing to consider here is they needed to take a little bit of extra time because they tried different dosing regimens in these kids, you know, smaller bodies, they tried smaller doses, uh, they wanted to go for, you know, the, the minimum amount of um, vaccine ingredients that would still induce a protective immune response. And it really looks like they found it. I think that's really encouraging. And I don't think there's anything to say that, you know, kids are in uh, a special danger uh, at this point. It's essential to get kids vaccines. Um, it's essential to protect them. As we sort of talked about earlier, we have seen uh, case rates really spiking in kids. And I think that is primarily because, uh, you know, Delta arrived. It had the easiest time getting into people who were unvaccinated. And unfortunately, a lot of very young kids were in that unvaccinated group. Mm -hmm. Now that kids are back in school, I think it's even more essential to have that in place. And the point about masking is so well taken. I do want to make sure that people aren't thinking, well, once our kids get vaccines, the masks can come off. I think that could be a little premature. You know, we saw what happened a few months ago. At this point, knowing that vaccines are not a, a perfect impenetrable shield, it is important to be layering our protections, especially while transmission rates are high. I don't think that necessarily means we're all going to be masking in perpetuity forever. But right now, while the threat is so big, um, that's something really important to keep in mind. Um, and including, you know, reasons other than COVID, right? There, we have so many other respiratory viruses going around and we saw what happened last year with the flu, RSV, these other viruses that are amazingly blocked by masks. Um, we now have some pretty good evidence that we can cut down on those infections as well. And if kids have to spend less time sick at home, all the better. Um, I'll acknowledge here super quickly that, you know, there have been concerns about side effects from the vaccines, uh, you know, not not the the, the typical harmless ones that uh, Sarah was mentioning earlier, but these extraordinarily, extraordinarily rare cases of, for instance, you know, myocarditis, um, the sort of heart inflammation. Um, I don't think that is a huge concern at this point. You know, those those things have occurred, um, but at very, very, very low rates. I think the take-home message here is that the risk posed to children by COVID, by this coronavirus, is far greater than the risk posed by any vaccine. Uh, Sarah, you've also written uh, recently about kids younger than, uh, than five uh, who still won't be eligible for a vaccine. Talk about what's happening for that age group, and do we have a sense of if and when they're likely to be able to be vaccinated. Yeah, so the vaccine trials uh, currently go down to age six months. So six months to two and then two to five are the, um, I guess, two age groups that are still left. Um, yeah, so as, as Catherine was saying, part of the reason these trials are taking a while is that we do typically do this like kind of age de-escalation strategy. So we go from adults and then we kind of go down, uh, down in age, right? Because, you know, you know, a teenager is more like an adult, uh, a 12 year old is more like a teenager, and then we get to six months and we're talking about infants. They're not just, uh, smaller people. We're also testing smaller doses. Um, so those trials are just taking a little while. Um, the trials that everyone has been watching have mostly been from Pfizer, just because they are the companies whose vaccines that kind of have been furthest along in the clinical trials. So they have said that they expect um, data for children two to five before the end of this year. Um, so assuming that, you know, this vaccine still looks as good as it did in older populations, I think we're talking about vaccinating kids from two to five, um, probably early next year. And then, of course, the next group is six months to two years old. And we don't have a great sense of exactly when that is, um, but just given how the kind of schedules work too far, so far, you know, assuming that still works out, I would probably, I think next year, um, the youngest children, six months to two years, might have vaccines available to them, too. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about what to do during the second COVID winter. I want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media as well. If you want to join the folks on the phones, 
313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests this hour are Sarah Zhang and Catherine Wu, both staff writers for The Atlantic. Uh, They have a new piece out talking about six things we ought to all be paying attention to, thinking about, as we go into the second COVID winter. Uh, All of the precautions that still really need to be in place uh, as we prepare for the disease to be with us for the foreseeable future, albeit somewhat differently, uh, because we do now have vaccines that help protect us from the worst consequences of uh, COVID-19. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, What are you doing? What are you planning to do this winter? How are you anticipating that things will either be the same or different during the next COVID winter? What are you thinking about vaccines? What are you thinking about boosters for vaccines? And what are you thinking about children who may soon, very soon, be able to join the vaccinated in uh, in this pandemic? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET spa- uh, Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Sarah and Catherine, before we get back to the phones, we had a caller who couldn't quite stay on the line long enough to join us. But he says he's a physician who is vaccinated. But he questions the statements that so-called natural immunity isn't as effective as vaccines. He says he also has had COVID and says there's no evidence that natural immunity isn't good enough. This is, again, something that I hear quite a bit. It's, it's I think, surprising perhaps to hear it from a physician, but I'd love for you guys to address it in the context of what perhaps the CDC is saying. And this is the way that I've been trying to answer a lot of people who who come up with these these arguments about vaccines, I keep saying, well, here's what I think the CDC would say about that. And that's probably the best guide for any of us, because uh, that is the collection of scientists that we've assembled to be able to manage diseases like this. So so give us a sense of why we know or how we know that natural immunity is not quite the same as vaccinated immunity. Uh, Sarah, I'll start with you this time. Sure. I think what's um, difficult in thinking about natural immunity and what makes this question um, a really good one is that uh, natural immunity isn't one thing, right? There's no single unit of natural immunity that everyone who has COVID has had. Um, When you get sick with COVID, you know, uh, you could have been... um, you could have been dosed with a different amount of, you could have been exposed to a different amount of virus at first. And the more virus you had, perhaps the more severe infection you had. You could have had a different reaction to the virus. Maybe you had a mild one, maybe you had a more severe one. So I think what, when we're talking about natural immunity, it's true that some people do have very good immunity after they've had COVID once, but some people don't. So it's hard to just predict whether a person who's had COVID before, how good their immunity will be. What's different with vaccines is that we that is a lot more standardized. Everyone gets the same dose. You get it, you know, mostly the same amount of time apart, the same number of doses. Now we're talking about boosters. Maybe you get another booster dose. But vaccines um, uh, just stimulate a much more kind of uniform amount of immunity in people. So I think when we're talking about natural immunity, the, the difficulty is that we don't know who are the people who had COVID who really are um, have very good immunity to the virus. Whereas with a vaccine, we just have a lot more confidence that if you had a vaccine, we know you probably have this amount of immunity. Of course, there's still a lot of natural variation from person to person. There's just less. And I think a vaccine just um, gives everyone a lot more confidence that you actually are immune. And and is, is it dangerous, perhaps, for a doctor to be saying the things that Stephen is saying here? And I wish he were with us so that he could say them himself. 
and 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 make his case but but it does seem to me that for a lot of people hearing that from a physician has more weight than it does if they hear it from someone else and it seems counterproductive to the effort to get people to take the vaccine. Uh, Catherine, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I would, of course, want to talk to Stephen and not <laughs> assume what his thinking is here. But sure. for whatever it's worth, every expert I've talked to, whether they're a virologist, immunologist, or, you know, a physician or another healthcare worker, they have told me that, you know, infection, post-infection immunity is no substitute for vaccination. Um, and, you know, we were talking about CDC guidelines here. The guidelines here in the United States are still, you know, an infection does not count as a dose of a vaccine. You are still meant to get um, your full course, whether that's one shot of J&J, two doses of Moderna, two doses of Pfizer, to really count as fully vaccinated. And I think the reason for that is to play it safe. You know, Tony Fauci has come out and said this very prominently in recent weeks. Um, that is the safest bet to do this, to ensure that everyone is, you know, receiving uh, standardized doses of something that we know is safe and protected in, in the majority of people. And this sort of accounts for the natural variation that Sarah was just talking about. Um, you know, one, one piece of evidence here is that there have been many studies looking at levels of antibodies in people who were previously infected. And I will caveat here that, you know, antibody levels are not a perfect proxy for how protected you are. That's still really being actively figured out, but it's one of the best measures we have at this point in time. And there have been studies to show that, you know, in some cases, depending on the population being surveyed, more than half of people who were previously infected actually don't have measurable antibodies to the virus. Whereas, you know, the vast majority of people who received vaccinations do have measurable antibodies. It's just a more consistent lesson for the immune system to learn about the virus in a really safe way. So, you know, exactly as Sarah said, sure, there are going to be some people who were infected and have good immune memory, have a good immune response to the virus, but it's just an enormous gamble. And I wouldn't want anyone to take that risk to think that because they were previously infected that they are now bulletproof um, in that sense. The best move is always going to be to layer vaccination on top of that, knowing that your protection from previous infection, sure, it could be something like, I don't know, 50% of what you're getting if you were to have been just vaccinated, but it could also be 1% or 0% even in mm. some cases. We just don't know. And uh, the best bet is to make sure that you are getting as much protection as you can at this point. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Martha in Ortonville. Martha, what's what's on your mind? Yes, Um I have been fully vaccinated since March. Uh, I live alone. I spend 99% of my time alone. I will be getting the booster uh, when the Moderna one is approved. And hopefully that will be available by November, which would be my eight-month eight point, which I have heard is a pretty good uh, point to shoot for. I do have a question. Um, because they keep announcing that the cases are going down in the U.S., and we were not one of the states that was reacted horribly badly at the beginning of the Delta hit, but we are not one of the good states now. And I don't think people in Michigan realize we're going up, and we're going up to the, to the point of 50% increase in four weeks. We are more than 20 times the number of cases per day that we had on June 22nd when they lifted the guidelines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that we're, instead of doing 150 cases a day, we're doing closer to 4,000. Yeah, yeah. Martha, that's a really great point. I'm really glad you called and made it and reminded our listeners of the situation here on the ground in Michigan, the idea that there are different parts of the country that are experiencing this differently and we're experiencing it particularly poorly here in in michigan uh catherine i wonder if you can talk about the the differences that still exist across the country that we still have these hot spots that are worse than than other places and the danger i guess that they pose to 
the overall attempt to, to, to lower cases and, and deaths. Yeah, certainly. And I think this actually gets to one of the the points that uh, Sarah and I were, were making in our piece that we co-wrote with with Ed Young. Um, but, you know, it's it's sort of easy to look and say, oh, look at all of these people who were vaccinated. Wait a second. Why are case rates still going up? And I think, you know, really, it's not just about the total percentage of people who are vaccinated, but how those people are distributed when you have large communities of mostly unvaccinated people, those communities can sort of be obscured by large state level numbers that say, oh, look, 60% vaccinated. That sounds wonderful. But, you know, that could be a mix of communities that are 90% vaccinated, 40% vaccinated, 20% vaccinated. And it's hard to tangle those things apart. Um, what I think is important to remember here is that, you know, we know that vaccination really cuts down on the risk of uh, of infection, of transmission, that is quite clear at this point. But vaccines can really only do so much in a community that really needs communal buy-in, multiple people um, sort of acquiring similar protections so that the virus really has nowhere to travel. Where those protections are low, you know, one vaccinated person in a community is not going to make much headway. And so it really is important, I think, as we go into the winter, um, I know there's enormous focus on boosters right now. And for people who do absolutely need boosters, I am glad they are getting them. But the focus should absolutely be on getting first and second doses, ideally to those who remain unvaccinated. Mm. That is going to make the biggest difference in how the winter goes. Okay. Uh, Catherine Wu and Sarah Zhang, co-authors of a piece in The Atlantic that takes a look at six things we ought to be thinking about and doing on the dawn of the next COVID winter. Thanks to both of you for being here uh, for this conversation. It was really great. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And of course, you can see their piece at uh, Atlantic.com. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Congressman Andy Levin is going to join the program to talk about the reconciliation and infrastructure bills in Congress, as well as the Biden administration's handling of Haitian migrants hoping to enter the country through Texas. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>